Please be seated. Let me invite you to open your Bibles to the book of 1 John. We have for the past several weeks, or the well, since the beginning of the year, uh, been in, in a study that we have titled Authentic Christianity, uh, because at times throughout history, and there are times today when those who are believers at times feel like their ground beneath them is a little bit shaky and are in need of reassurance just to make sure that they know what solid ground feels like, whether they are truly believers, whether the promises of God belong to them or not. And that's exactly what the purpose that John has in, in writing this letter is to reaffirm those who are believers and to describe what authentic Christianity is and then to encourage those who are believers with the promises that are theirs that come from God because of his love and because of his grace. Now, our text this morning is in 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 through 27. I'm going to do something a little different uh, this morning because of both the length, which we've had longer, but the length and the complexity of this particular passage. I'm going to treat this a little more like a Bible study than typically we do in terms of a message. It'll be a message, it'll have its points, and you'll know what the points are. But rather than reading and then and, and alluding to, we'll work our way through the particular passage uh, this morning so that we can touch on all that John brings out for us uh, in, in this passage, and there is quite a bit. But before we go to the Word, we want to go to the Lord in prayer. And for those who are a little slower in terms of the sword drills, feel free to keep looking for your page even while I'm praying. It won't bother me, and it definitely does not bother the Lord. So let's uh, go to him now. Father, we do come at this time and we commit ourselves to the studying of your word. But even that, as uh, we know, is a misnomer, for we may pour all of our intellect into it. But unless you, in your grace and by the power of your spirit, open the eyes of our hearts, we may see but never perceive. We may hear but never understand. But you and your grace have given us your truth, unlocked the secret mysteries of the kingdom that all who may believe may be built up, strengthened, and grow in grace and knowledge of Christ. We pray now that as we commit this time, that it would not be merely an academic effort, but that we would listen for your voice and that you would speak to us, that we may grow and we may know that we are yours. Father, bless us that we may bless you and that we may bless those around us. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. It seems to have left an indelible mark on his psyche. Why? Who knows? They'd had countless deep discussions over the years that they, they worked together and the years that they had known one another. And he'd learned so much from this, this guy. But now, even after all these years, one particular conversation seems to be on the forefront of his mind. Even after 50 years, since the day of the conversation, the lesson that he learned still seems central to his life and to answer the questions that the people around him were asking. See, there was a time when Jesus was speaking with his disciples, and he asked them a seemingly rhetorical question, who do people say that I am? 
And as each of them chipped in different things that they had heard, some amusing, some absurd, some interesting. Jesus then turned and said, but who do you say that I am? And it's that question that continues to be on the forefront of of John's mind as we see it evidenced in this particular text because John says that the answer in this passage, John says that the answer to that question determines everything. We see it in the central part in verses 22 and 23 as John is, is writing to the believers here in Ephesus. He says this, Who's a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who decides, denies the Son has the Father. But whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. John, in a, those two verses, saying that the central truth of who Christ is is the foundation of all of our identity and all of our questions about the relationship that we can have with the Lord. John, again, is writing to people who are needing of being reassured, being reaffirmed. That's what this entire letter is about. And through this letter, as we've seen, that there are different instructions as well as different opportunities for taking personal inventory. Scholars call, uh, a lot of scholars, Bible scholars, refer to them as the three tests. And here in this passage, we have the, the third test, which some call the, the doctrinal test or the belief test, which is... How do you know if you are truly a Christian, if you truly belong to the Lord? And the answer is, how do you answer the question of who is Jesus? John says here in the middle of this passage, anyone who denies Christ is, 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 does have not have, cannot have a relationship with the Father. But anybody who confesses, anybody who recognizes that Christ is the Son of God, not only do they have a relationship with Jesus himself, but they have a relationship with the Father. The person of Jesus and what we believe about Jesus is the foundation, it's central to absolutely everything. But John, in, in saying that, actually gives a lot of information to help us and to encourage us and to inform us in this particular letter. And as we look at this letter, we're going to look at it in two parts because there really are, are two points that John makes here. He does try to help us to understand, first, that there are two kinds of people. And then second, he says, for those who are believers, those who understand that Jesus is the Christ, there are two safeguards to our faith that we need to be aware of and that we need to be employing in our lives. Now, as we begin in the, the first part, when John, that I said that John essentially saying here is that there are two kinds of people. Those two kinds of people are very simply, there are those who love the Lord Jesus as God, and there are those who don't. As we begin here in the, the beginning of uh, in verse 18, it would probably be helpful if we had just kind of like a, an organ to play a dirge and a, some minor key, as you, and you'll understand why as we read what John says at the beginning of this. He says, children, it's the last hour. This kind of, this kind of sounds ominous. Not the children part. Children is his regular expression for those who are all believers that he's, he's writing to. It's in terms of endearment. But he's saying to them, this is the end. The last hour or the last days, it seems rather ominous and we tend to think of spooky and weird things. Our minds go all over the place and uh, thinking perhaps of movies that we might have seen about the last days and what's going to happen in those last days. In one sense, that's what John has in mind, but it's not the way that we tend to think of it. When he says it's the last hour, it's the last days, it's not that we can start counting down the days but rather that in all of the epics of human history, 
as we have known it, from the creation to where we are today, this is the last chapter. There is no epic left to be written in God's redemptive history that is part of that. God made creation. God created man. Man fell, messed everything up. Those were the first two, essentially, epics. From that point on, God was calling a people to himself. And, he was, and as he called a people to himself, adopted them, made them his own, blessed them, and they continue to sometimes obey, sometimes rebel, never giving themselves fully to the Lord. The Lord continues over and over to show his character, his nature, his justice, his holiness, and yet his grace and his love to these people until finally the promise of the redemption of making them truly his own was fulfilled in the person of Christ. John, at the beginning of this letter, says, that's what I'm testifying to because Christ is somebody that we, we saw, we heard, we even touched with our own hands, and it's him that we are proclaiming to you so that you may know. But here at the beginning of this chapter, he's saying this is the last day. This, he just simply means there is no more epic to come other than the next thing that is promised is the return of Christ, the reign of Christ, and everything will change. Time as we know it, earth as we know it, everything will change at that time. He's not sounding a warning that we are literally can tick the clock down like New Year's Eve, seeing the clock draw, the ball dropping. He's just simply saying, don't expect anything new. We are in these last days. And then he goes on, and it doesn't really seem to help because we still hear that ominous music because he starts he's speaking to them, and he says, and as you have heard, that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. I don't know of probably anything that gets people's minds going off in all sorts of weird directions than hearing about the Antichrist. And here's what John is saying that seems even more peculiar. He's saying to people, and I'm assuming that they were talking about the Antichrist and he would have heard it because he's saying, you know that an Antichrist is coming. It must have been on their minds. He's saying, I'm telling you, there's a whole bunch of antichrists that are around you. Now, for the person who doesn't see what John is saying necessarily, that seems even stranger. John, as he's addressing here, I think he's doing something that's very practical, not only for them, but it's important for us uh, today as well. Because John's acknowledging that there will be one at the end of time, an apocalyptic entity that, is, that, uh, that, that comes to uh, being. And yet, he's not emphasizing that guy, that expression of evil that has certain powers, influence. He's taking our attention off. And the reason it's practical is because I think even like apparently was true then, we are so prone to want to know the identity of that Antichrist. We want to know who is that real-life Damien Thorne or Nikolai, whatever his name was, from Left Behind. And people are constantly looking. I thought it was done when I started college because the Antichrist at my freshman year of college had been identified on the basis of the letters in his name. In his first name, second, middle name, and his last name, each had six letters. 666, Ronald Wilson Reagan. Somebody shot him and he didn't die. I mean, that seemed to prove it. It was all over with at that point. He was the Antichrist. And whether you like him or not, I would suggest to you he was not the Antichrist that was promised. One reason we know that is because he was not the last president for some to accuse of being the Antichrist. Not trying to be political, I'm suspecting that he's not the last president that will be uh, suggested as being the Antichrist. We just have this desire to try to figure out who this mysterious figure is going to be and whether he's alive. 
And John says it's not that it's not important because he's addressing this issue, but I think he's capturing the attention of people where we tend to fantasize and speculate and spend all of our time on this weird mystical stuff, and he brings us back to reality. And what he says is, look, I know you know that there's an antichrist coming, but what you don't seem to be thinking much about is there's a whole bunch of antichrists around you. They're already here. They're more present, more imminent danger to your faith than the guy who's coming sometime down the road. Now, that doesn't necessarily calm us either because our minds still tend to think of, okay, there's an antichrist. Now we have a bunch of little antichrists, which are just his minions, like little demons. What are they? John actually defines that for us in a way that is much more mundane and much more simple, but they're still important because John is calling our attention to these people. And he defines who they are later on. As he goes through first in verse 19, he says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they, were, uh, that, uh, that they all are not of us. Now, this can be a confusing rhetoric that John is talking about here. Apparently, what we do know from what he's saying is apparently that the people that he's talking about specifically, those who he's describing as antichrists, plural, had apparently been part of the church at one time. I have since subsequently left the church. He's not talking about people who leave, you know, first church to go to plant second church, and anybody who leaves a church that they should be labeled an antichrist. He's talking about people who had professed the faith. They left the church, period, left the faith, no longer profess faith, or at least not the faith that was entrusted to them from the very beginning. They are no longer proclaiming the Christ as Christ being the Son of God. They're no longer proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. What we have here, and I don't have time to go into great detail, but just to, from a theological standpoint, is what we call the doctrine of perseverance or the doctrine of preservation. John here is saying, look, we know that they never really were part of us because they left. And the implication is that those who belong to Christ, those who are Christ, those who have been redeemed by Christ, while we waver, we fall, we stumble, ultimately we will not leave the faith. And anyone who leaves the faith, it's just evidence that they never truly had it. They bought philosophy, identity, all sorts of other things that would make them inclined to join a church and declare what is required to join a church, but they never really believed. They never really were converted. That's what John is talking about here, and apparently that was true of these antichrists. He continues to go on and, and talk about them. In verse, uh, picking up any, uh, in verse 20, uh, well, let me just continue where he is, because again, we're talking about there's two kinds of people. In verse 20, he's contrasting those people with the, with the believers. He said, but you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you, have, uh, you all have knowledge. And I'm writing to you not because you don't know the truth, but because you do know the truth and because no lie is of the truth. Who's the liar? But he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. And so John here is, is now in this is saying, okay, there are, here's the two types of people. There are the true believers, you who have been able to believe, you who believe in Christ, who have been anointed. When he talks about anointing, he's talking about the work of the Holy Spirit that has given you the gift and the ability to believe that has union, made you connected with Christ. And he contrasts those who believe, who are believing that Jesus is the promised Messiah, that he is the Son of God, with those who no longer, and John actually makes a claim that seems a little harsh, but it's important for us to consider. He's saying, who are the Antichrist? It's the people who are lying. 
who are denying that Christ is the Messiah. The reason that seems harsh to me is because I have a lot of friends and I know a lot of people who don't seem to be lying. They just don't believe. They're telling me exactly what they believe when they deny that, they, that Christ is the Messiah. So what is John saying here? I think the implication is, is that there's something in all people that understand who the real God is, that Christ is the promised Messiah. We have intellectual arguments that make us reject. We have questions that are not bad, but cause us to not embrace the reality of it. But John seems to be suggesting that inherently the truth of what God has revealed in the person of Christ is to be universally accepted. The idea that somebody is called a liar is hard to accept, but I, I think that it was helpful for me uh, when I heard one teacher explain it this way and saying that he's referring to them as liars as anybody who knows the truth but denies it. In other words, they've heard it, whether they've embraced it for themselves or not, but they've heard the truth, but they deny it. They're continuing to communicate a lie. And if somebody continues to communicate a lie, then what does that make them? It makes them a liar. And it's really that simple. I don't think John is into name-calling here. He's just describing the effect, and if the effect, then the adjective that describes the person that's causing the effect. I've also heard it illustrated this way that I find helpful. It seems to be common understanding that most children can't stand medicine. If you are a parent, you've probably had some who were difficult, some more difficult than others. Some of ours were more difficult than others. We had at least one that required two of us, to, one to hold and pin the kid down, and one to shove the things into their throat. Um, you know, it's amazing what a 25-pound child can exert in terms of strength when they don't want to take medicine. So parents aren't the only ones that understand that children don't like medicine. Pharmaceutical companies understood that children don't like medicine, don't want to take their medicine, and wanted to not only benefit children, but to sell their medicine. So they make medicine that tastes like candy. And so you give little pills or little drops or whatever it is, and it tastes sweet in their mouth, and the kids have not only don't mind, but sometimes overdose on the little candies that they're given because they like taking this candy-tasting medicine. The reason the kids take it is because they have been deceived. They believe they're taking candy when it is, in reality, taking medicine. But even though they have been deceived, their body has not been deceived. When the body takes it, even though they think that they're taking, the, the brain says, I'm taking candy, the body recognizes that it's taking medicine and then re responds to the medicine accordingly. What John seems to be saying here is the same is true for the human soul. When Christ has been proclaimed and we have heard that reality, our minds may deceive ourselves and we may reject him or people may reject him. And in so doing, they're propagating an untruth because he is God, our Redeemer. But the soul is never deceived any more than the body is deceived when something comes even in the disguised form. Christ is. And the soul understands. And so even if the minds deceive us to proclaim anything other 
means that we are liars. And John says there's two kinds of people. There are those who love the Lord Jesus as God. There are those who don't. In one sense, he's saying not only liars, but harsh words, it seems, in terms of antichrist. But again, we need to realize what John is saying. There's a play on words here. He's not saying everyone who is a believer, at least the way that we would describe them, is an evil, rotten, no good individual. He's saying, here's the reality. They are against Christ. And any unbeliever, any self-conscious unbeliever, any atheist, or even any agnostic would have to say that would be a fair description. They may not have any personal animosity towards Jesus, but if they are not supporting that he is who he says he is, then they are against his claims. They are against Christ. And so the Antichrist that John is talking about here, he's saying there's two kinds of people. We need to be aware of that. And I think the reason he's saying don't just get caught up in the mystical, magical, but realize that there are people, in particular his focus here is not just every unbeliever, but the people who are going out and teaching contrary to what God has revealed about the person of Christ. He said, they're all around you. Be very aware of who they are, what their condition is, so that when you hear what they teach, it is not going to have a negative impact. You won't be tossed into confusion. He's not saying reject everybody who disagrees. He's not saying have nothing to do with unbelievers. There's nothing in that. But he is using the play on words, showing the reality that there's two kinds of people If you want solid faith, then you grow from those who are proclaiming the truth. But it also begs the question, which are you? Now, only a few ordinary people that I know would say, I'm an antichrist. But if we consider the categories that John has in mind, the question is, are you one who believes that Jesus is the Christ? Do you rejoice and celebrate Christ, uh, Jesus as God? Or are you somebody who has an alternative opinion? At this point, John is not attributing moral standard of goodness at all. He's just saying, where, where, which category do you fall in? Asking yourself that question, do I believe or do I not believe? He's writing to believers. And hopefully most everybody here, ideally eventually everybody here, but we always have and we're delighted to have unbelievers or people who are searching with us. So I'd be foolish to assume everybody here would say, I'm a believer. But John, as he's writing this, he's writing to those who would answer that question and say, okay, I believe. Because that's who he has in focus. He's trying to encourage those who are believers for some reason feel unsettled. Knowing who you are, John continues and says, not only are there two types of people, but there are two safeguards for those who are believers. We see the first of the safeguards very clearly in verse 24. John writes this, let what you have heard from the beginning abide in you. Seems pretty straightforward. But it does seem to beg the other question. What is it that believers have heard from the beginning that makes a difference in their life? What is it that is, what what marks the beginning? What is it that you've heard that marks the beginning? And the clear answer would be the gospel. 
He is talking about God's word. There's no question about that. But there are different parts of God's word. All are valuable, but not all are the same. He's talking about the Ten Commandments for existence, uh, for, uh, and since the, they are beautiful and the fact that they reflect the glory of God, law that we are all much better off if we were to live according to those standards than if we were to ignore them. But it doesn't bring any real change. What it does is brings condemnation because I'm incapable of keeping them even when I'm motivated which is not constant. But what you heard at the beginning is this, you, me, who have violated the laws, who have broken God's standards, have broken fellowship, who are alienated from God, who are enemies of God, who cannot fix what you have broken, who have no hope to pay back what you have taken. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He took on our flesh, he became like us so that he could take upon himself the punishment that we deserved, that his body would be broken, his blood would be shed, that we would not only be forgiven, we would be set free, that we would be able to grow, and we would have fellowship with God. That's the whole point of what John is writing in this letter. That makes a difference because when we believe that gospel message, that's a new beginning. We become a new creation. And what John is saying here in terms of our safeguard is, let that which you heard from the beginning abide in you. What does it mean to abide? It means to not just sit there, but to be alive, to be at work within you. And that makes a significant difference in the way we live our lives and the focus of our faith. Because so many are inclined to think that the gospel message is the ticket that we get in. We were believed, we exchanged the ticket, now we are in, and we are left to do the best we can, progressively get better, knowing we always have Jesus there. If we mess up, we can always go back. He's the lifeguard. John's not saying he's a lifeguard. He's saying that gospel message is a safeguard. That kind of relationship to the gospel is not, it's somebody who's still a believer, but it's not what John is saying. John is saying letting the gospel be alive in you, abide in you. I don't think there's any other way to describe that than what we frequently around here refer to as a gospel-centered life. A life that recognizes that we never move beyond the gospel. The gospel is not just our way in, that we constantly refer to it and relate to the gospel. That is not only our hope, but it's the means by which we grow. As Tim Keller has rightly put, the gospel is not the ABCs of the Christian faith. It is the A through Z of the Christian faith. In other words, we are prone to think of the gospel as the ABC. That's the basics. You've got to have the basics. Once you master the basics, then you can move on to other things. When the reality is it's the A through Z, it's everything there is. There is nothing apart from the gospel. Everything is related to the gospel. And we relate to that gospel. Now, we try to teach that consistently here. Not without failing and not without some pushback. We also need to consider what the alternatives are. For believers, I'm not talking about people who have tried to buy some other God. John's not talking about that. John's talking about let that which you heard from the beginning abide in you. And there are several. There are three that are very common. The 
First, I'll simply call moralism. That's the idea that now that we are believers, we need to live a life that is going to honor God. So we just need to be good people and somehow assume that we'll become better or we'll try harder so that we will be better people, better than we were, maybe better than other people. And yet we need to realize that that's not what John is saying. He's saying that we're to relate to the message that we heard at first in a way. Becoming better, growth, is a byproduct, but it's not the focus. And when we focus on that, we are focusing on something that doesn't produce. We're focusing on the results. Another common mistake is activism. You might even quote James in saying, I'll show you my faith by what I do. And in a world where there's a lot of things that need to be addressed, it's a fallen, broken world, and things need to be addressed, a lot of injustices that need to be confronted, we might pour ourselves into picketing, being willing to be arrested, contending for what we believe to be right, pouring our lives out that clean water wells might be developed in third world countries. Everything, all of them good and commendable and noble, but we tend then to relate to God on the basis of what we have accomplished, as if God had need of our accomplishments, as if God was impressed with our accomplishments, or if our accomplishments somehow did something for us. Again, it's putting the cart before the horse. And the other one that becomes pretty common, and it tends to be self-absorbed, I don't know how common it is around the world, but Americans seem to like it, I would call therapeutic spirituality. We realize we're broken. The gospel offers us hope. So now that we belong, we just relate to God on the basis of how do I feel? I feel spiritual. I feel good. And as long as we feel good, then we pick promises that make us feel good. Now, as I alter, offer these three as alternatives, gospels, they're really counterfeits. Counterfeits in one sense, they're counterfeits to the gospel itself. They're not wrong. Every one of them has a valid place. are all byproducts of what the gospel is but they are not the gospel itself. They are counterfeits no matter how much beauty they offer. I saw in the news yesterday that Costco is apparently getting sued by the Tiffany Corporation. Apparently Costco has been selling little um, diamond rings for engagements and other activities that on the side of the little box it says Tiffany rings. So people are buying them and giving them for engagements and apparently the Tiffany Corporation was not amused nor were they involved in this. And so they've sent their lawyer to say cease and desist, and they're suing them for $2 billion in damages for selling these little rings. Now, I want you to think about the ladies that have received the rings, the guys that have bought the rings. Is there anything wrong with the rings? Absolutely not. I mean, it does the purpose. It probably looks pretty. It fits on somebody's finger. It announces that they are engaged or married or whatever other purpose it may be. It meets all the qualifications. The only thing is it's just not the real deal. And the same is true for the counterfeit gospels that we buy into. When we think that it's about our moralism or about our activism or just about feeling good or thinking well about others, those are all byproducts and there is beauty in them. But the real deal that John is saying abide in is the life and death 
and resurrection of Christ and all of the implications of that, that we continue to be connected to that because that's what's going to bear the real fruit that we're looking for in these counterfeits. I need to move on very quickly to the second one because, well, I've talked too long already. That's one of the safeguards that John is talking about. We see the second safeguard picking up in verse 27. Verse 26, John again reminds us why he's writing. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. Those who are the other people, the people who don't love Jesus as God. Those he refers to as the Antichrist, those who are teaching you something wrong about Christ. Verse 27, here's the safeguard. But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But this is his anointing. It teaches you about everything and is true and is, and is no lie. Just as it has taught you, abide in him. We saw the anointing John referred to a little while ago. He's referring to it again. One of the safeguards that we have is abiding, allowing the gospel to abide in us, to be alive in us, to continue to keep a dynamic connection to the gospel message and not substitute anything for it. Here John is saying you keep a dynamic connection to the work of the Holy Spirit who is the one who has illuminated you, who has helped you to see the truth that has been given to you through God's word, God's revelation. Now John says something here that is Sometimes confusing, and often confusing, because he says in this passage, in verse 27, he says, but the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and that's really where the safeguard is, and then he follows that up by saying, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. And some have interpreted that as saying, well, then we don't need anybody to teach us, which does give a whole lot more time for golf if you don't have to go to Bible study and don't have to listen to a sermon every week. But that's not what John is saying. And we know this for a very simple reason, because I don't like the idea of saying, what you're reading isn't saying what it looks like it's saying. I hate when I do that, but in this case, it's necessary. But I think that you'll see, if you don't already see, why it can't possibly mean what some are inclined to think. Because what's John's purpose in writing this letter in the first place? He's teaching. That's what he says from the very beginning. We're testifying to you, we're encouraging you, we're teaching you, we're instructing about what we have seen, what we've heard, what we've taught, and we're trying to help you apply it. If John was saying, you don't need anybody to help you te to teach you anything, nobody's going to teach you, he might have still written them. He'd have just written, hey, how are you? Too much snow here for me. You know, whatever the weather is. But he's not going to instruct them. He's instructing. And throughout the scriptures, we see that there is a need for teachers. There's a benefit. God has gifted people to be teachers. He's not saying that. But what he is saying is because you who are believers, and every believer has the Holy Spirit who is dwelling within them, you don't need anything else in order, any outside sources. He's referring to what you already have in the anointing. You have the Spirit who helps us to understand the Word. You have the Word. These false teachers were coming in and saying, okay, we well, have this, but have you read this? Have you considered this? And they're bringing in outside sources and in trying to help people, they're confusing people by bringing in things that are supplements. And John's saying is you don't need any supplements. You have the Holy Spirit who brings understanding of the word. To bring a supplement is not only unhelpful, it can at times be dangerous. Imagine you're trying to fix your car. You have the manual for your car. But you think, you know, 
wouldn't it be really neat if I had a supplement? So you go out and buy the manual for the bicycle too. And then try to figure out how your car engine's gonna run just like your bicycle, or at least make those two things go. It's gonna cause damage. The supplemental information is of no benefit whatsoever. It can only confuse things, and if you try to incorporate it, it can actually create damage. And John is saying, here's the safeguards. You have the gospel, allow the gospel, connect to the gospel, let it abide in you. And at the same time, you already have the anointing that abides in you. The Holy Spirit dwells within you, and so abide in him as well. The two safeguards that we have here that John is saying for those who are believers, that we know that we're on solid ground, that we continue to walk on solid ground, are the gospel and the presence of the Holy Spirit. Keeping in step, keeping both, allowing both to be alive in you, which means you have an intentional commitment to both of them. And they're the safeguards. They're like when you're going to Bush Gardens and you get on one of the coasters. What do they do? You sit in your seat, somebody comes along, and they just crank this cage down around you so that you're not able to fall off. They go and fall out when you go upside down. Then they go up and down, and then somebody else comes. After it's already down, they shake it a little to make sure that it's already set. And so there's a double check. John is doing the same thing for you who are believers, saying you have the relationship with God the Father if you believe in Jesus Christ. And here's how you remain safe. Here's how the safeguards are in place. Make sure that you don't substitute anything for the gospel and make sure that you keep in step with the Holy Spirit who's going to illumine the Word of God. You don't need any new revelation. You already have everything that you need. If you do those two things, you will remain firm, and the joy that you desire in your relationship will continue to grow in you, regardless of the circumstances around you, and regardless of the fact that there are people who are trying to deceive you, maybe even people that you love. But you will remain firm you have that status. I'm going to wrap it up with just this as an illustration because sometimes people, the assurance thing gets on people, people get uncomfortable with. It sounds kind of arrogant. Like, you people think you're special. How can you possibly know? I want you to imagine uh, several weeks ahead, maybe it's Memorial Day, and you're at a parade, and somebody comes up and asks you while you're at the parade, what country are you a citizen of? Well, I know this illustration doesn't work the same for everybody, but everybody's probably a citizen of some place. But since the vast majority of us here are citizens of the United States, the illustration works either way. You say, I'm a citizen of the USA. Now imagine if they say, are you sure? And you say, I'm quite certain. Again, if it's China or wherever, you can substitute that in. It still works. Now imagine that the person says, well, you must think you're special. To be so sure that you belong and you are a citizen of whatever country. The only thing that that kind of question reveals is that guy had too many beers before he showed up at the, at the parade. Because it's an absolutely asinine kind of statement, and we recognize it in that context. But it still applies to those who are believers in Christ. How do you know that you belong to God and have fellowship with the Father? Because I've trusted in Jesus Christ. And God, who has all authority to determine who belongs and who doesn't, says, if you have received my son, if you confess my son, you have fellowship not only with the son, but with me. You are mine. And you have every reason to believe that. And so it comes back again to the fundamental question, who do you say Jesus is? And the belief test says that if your answer to that is, well, I have all sorts of questions, but I trust that Jesus is the promised Messiah. He is the son of God. You belong to him. Let me pray. Father, we give thanks to you for this word, this assurance, and even these cautions. And I pray that we would be a people that would be rooted deeply in this one truth and availing ourselves of these safeguards. 
that we may have the joy that you have laid out before us in fellowship with you and with all other believers. Bless us, Lord. Strengthen us that we may do the same for others. I pray in Jesus. Amen. Please stand as we sing our parting hymn.